This is SciBite, episode 62, for September 11th, 2012. Hi, everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, streamed every single Tuesday evening over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash live and available Wednesdays on demand. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is Heather. Hey, Heather. Hey, Chris. Happy science to you. Happy science. What are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to take a look at the Stradivarius violins, tiger time sharing, asteroids, hydrogel, running robots, disintegrating planets, spacecraft updates, and as always, take a peek back in history and up in the sky this week. Finally, this show addresses the topic of tiger timesharing. I say yes. it's time to do the news. All right, Heather, don't disappoint me. What is our first story tonight? All right. Tigers generally move around at all times of the day and the night, but it's discovered that the tigers in the Chitwan National Park in Nepal have actually become mostly night creatures. Okay. They're mostly moving around at night. So they're using, they're really using the same space as the people there. And in order to be for some, you know, long-term future, there has to be some division there. Okay. So there's been analysis about um, you know, the local pop- human population is collecting firewood. There's soldiers on patrols mm. to kind of deter poachers. Mm. There's this ecotourism. And they've actually had all of these camera traps, which we've talked about before uh, on a number of different occasions. You know, they set up a, a box and it takes pictures of the day or the night every time it walks by. So they had them scattered about this park. And, you know, during the day it catches people. And they saw in the populated areas the tigers started appearing mostly at night. Now, if you went away from the populated areas, it was day and night equally. Huh. So the tigers were kind of, they don't particularly like to deal with humans. They'd, they'd rather not. They're annoying for them, I think. Sure, yeah. You know, we're, we're annoying for them. But so they started adjusting their activity cycle. So it was going at night. So it's like these same paths and areas, like, during the day, people. And then as soon as night falls, everyone goes. Everyone is pretty much inside. The night crew comes out and it's the tigers. Yeah, the night crew comes out and the tigers. So they're like time sharing the same you know, area of land. And they were able to do this research from January through May. So it was through the entire dry season before the monsoon began. And so you're telling me that if, you, uh, if these same observers take their equipment mm-hmm. and set up cameras and whatever they're doing and go to uh, away from civilization... Then these, then these same tigers will, will do the same exact type of activity during the day? Yes, they were actually able to see that as they went away from it, they did. They, they were doing, you know, their activity rate was much higher during the day. Hmm. So it was just around that park. They were much more likely to be active at night. And there are like thousands of images that they went through of people and tigers all walking down the same trails just at different times of the day. That's interesting. And what this led into is the fact that the overall tiger population in the park didn't drop 
when more humans were around. In 2010, there was an average of 4.4 tigers per square, you know, 100 square kilometers. And the next year, that jumped up 40%, even though the human population in the camera traps also grew 50, 55%. Hmm. So, in this specific case, you know, it's the human population is not affecting the tiger population. So, it seems like then if uh, <clears throat> the tigers are able to successfully adapt to a nighttime lifestyle and, I guess, sleep during the day or whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. um, and they're able to then catch the same prey that they would have already caught during the day, uh, yeah. as long as we as the humans can keep their area that they're running around in, you know, preserved so that it's still f- safe and and you know beneficial to them then Mm -hmm. coexistence seems possible oh incredibly so there's you know opens up the ability that there might be this middle ground where you can protect these species in you know human populated areas and of course it's not going to work for for everything it's going to be kind of a case-by-case basis and you know, it'll all shift between species, between habitat. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah not, not all species are as adaptable. Yeah, but the whole idea that, you know, this is a new angle of being able to share the same space. You know, in a non-effective way, you know, the humans are obviously able to continue doing, you know, doing their thing. They can, you know, they have the tourists, they have their fire, they you know, together the firewood, but the tigers are also being able to go out and do their thing. And it's, you know, the tigers are consciously, it seems, doing this, you know, or have sort of switched to the night shift in this specific area because that's when the kind of the lay of land is theirs. Now, we got to make sure that it's clear so that way you don't have a bunch of tourists going in there for a nighttime stroll. <laughs> no, no, it was pretty clear. It's like. You know, it's a start, you know, people go out during the day, and then as soon as night falls, clunk, all the doors go, all the doors go closed, windows go shut. Yeah. You know, there's, there's tigers in the area. Tiger you time. Can't, yeah. Yeah. Well, even before the tigers started switching, you didn't want to be wandering out in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and look like a tasty midnight snack for a tiger. You got to be careful so, when you're in tiger town. Yeah. So, you know, they started, you know, locking up. And so then I'm pretty sure the tigers are like, you know, going in and out during the day or the night. And they're like, huh. We don't, we don't have this place all to ourselves at night. This is the way to go. That's way better. Yeah, for them it's way better. It's not nearly yeah. as uh, it's not nearly as dangerous for them. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. So it was just it was a really interesting study that because it was so localized, once they started going away from the populated areas, like we said, it was it was normal sort of day night cycles for them. Very encouraging. And you know what I'd be really curious to hear is uh, if there are uh, any future reports of other types of animals that are adaptable like this? Because you think it's yeah. almost like a survival thing. So they might, it might not be that uncommon that uh, animals have, a, you know, a capacity to, to adjust. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to adjust. They can, you know, in their own way, try to adjust. And now that this is seen here, it's these kind of things happen a lot. Where you have a camera, you know, all these camera traps and this whole study, and they take thousands and thousands of pictures, mm-hmm. and now. These people say, hey, I actually see this happening. And now you can go into other areas where there is a mixed population of humans and animals. And the researchers there can, can then go, hey, I wonder if that happens for us. Let's yeah, look. Yeah, sure. So then they start analyzing their data for that specific case. Hmm. Be interesting to find out. 
All right. Well, then, with that, why don't we take a quick pause here and mention how folks can support this program and keep shows just like SciBite coming to you. Now, uh, Jupiter Broadcasting doesn't have many sponsors, and I think we all kind of like it that way, don't we? And one of the ways that we get by by getting away with that little uh, little trick is uh, we get sponsored directly by our audience. And uh, you can uh, you can participate and uh, keep these shows coming to you by using the affiliate system that we've set up. We have affiliate links down at the bottom of Jupiter Broadcasting. I'll be announcing a new one in this week's episode of Unfilter that I'm very excited about. Uh, and we also have a support uh, model where you can just donate directly, and then you're not going through a middleman. The, you you know exactly how much you're contributing to the network, and it helps you feel like you have a bit of ownership. And honestly, it keeps us answering directly to you and keeps all the sponsorships to a minimum. doesn't mean we don't have any sponsors, but it means we can keep them to a minimum as possible. Uh, and in fact, Heather and I do have a couple of picks if you are thinking about trying the affiliate system. I mentioned it last week, but I think it deserves another mention, don't you, Heather? That's yes. The Avengers, right? Yes, definitely like the summer movie which heather hasn't seen yet so i'm really no. after you see it you gotta let me know and then we can we can mention it on the show and uh, oh yeah yeah because i i'm curious to see what you think now did you like iron man and and those movies yes i've, I've okay. enjoy, really enjoyed all the ones all right I've seen. okay so there you go so uh of course it uh comes out uh, in just uh, a few weeks uh september 25th you can two pre-order, weeks. yeah two right you can pre-order it or uh or, uh, you know, you could not, and then not have it, but oh my gosh. Uh, and then also... You could be missing out. Uh, I'm going to go also mention is something that will be germane to uh, this week's episode of SciBite. Uh, the right. mystery of the hieroglyphs, the story of the Rosetta Stone, and the race to decipher the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And uh, stay tuned for this week's episode. You'll find out how that's relevant. But if uh, we pique your interest, that might be another way you could... Uh, you can think about supporting the network. Now, something that's completely free, I just want to let you folks know about if you're a Jupiter Broadcasting fan, is uh, Not Bryant in the chat room, I think he's in there right now watching SciBite, made a new Android app for the network. Now, there are some other apps in there you can check out as well in the Google Play Store, but it's called Callisto. Huh? Clever, right, Heather? Nice. <laughs> and uh, it lets you listen to uh, our pre-recorded back catalog, so you could go grab old episodes of SciBite or grab the absolute latest. It lets you tune into the live shows and join the IRC chat room from within the app. You can look at the calendar to see the upcoming schedule, and uh, you can also uh, hit the uh, little contact button if you want to send some feedback to the show. There's also a donate button where you can contribute to the network. And wow. uh, so, yeah, check it out. It's uh, it's available in the Android uh, Play Store. I hate calling it that. It's uh, it's free. So uh, we just uh, it's also open source. So if you are a developer and interested in contributing to that, it was just published on GitHub and all that kind of stuff. So it's really cool. And thank you to uh, not Bryant in the uh, IRC chat room for doing that for us. Isn't that awesome, Heather, to have a community that member is. just do that? That's good oh, job. Man, I love that. And then to make it free too. It's yeah, yeah, yeah very cool. All right, then why don't we move on to the SciBite News Bite? Okay, Heather, what is the first story in the news bite? And it goes with the fact that I'm waving my arms like I'm conducting an orchestra for that introduction. Yes. New looking at Stradivarius violins. Whoa, okay. Strata, yeah. Stradivarius. It's the really famous violins. They sound incredible Mm. and really haven't been able to figure out why they do or how to reproduce it. You're kidding me. Until recently. Oh. Now, back. Uh, a couple years ago, they've, you know, they've looked at, you know, ways that maybe the varnish on the specific wood, you know, changed it so that, you know, the tone quality was there. Now, there's been another study recently that says that um, they've possibly found a special fungus that they could apply to the wood that 
makes it sound the same. A fungus. Yes. So a good violin, um, it doesn't doesn't you know doesn't depend on the maker on the it's also the quality of the wood. You're looking for this low density, high speed of sound. You know, it's the the makeup of the wood kind of makes sense. You know how the cell structure is laid out okay. depends on how the sound flows through it. Yeah. Okay. That does make sense when you break it down like that. So you want a specific you know elasticity. You want the cells created. You know because you have you know cell structures that you know, sound reduction walls, but you also want to have one that, you know, projects it in just the right way. Hmm. So the idea was that some of them have looked at it and they said there was a cold period during the time where Antonio Stradivari was making these violins between 1645 and 1715. And it was this long winters, cool summers, so the wood could grow at a really slow, even rate. Okay. Which created this low density, you know, elasticity. So it was kind of this whole wood that wasn't, you know, slow in the winter, fast in the summer. So it was very even. And so, and you know, other past experiments have said that it's a specific varnish. The chemicals in the varnish actually applied to the wood and kind of created that. This huh. says that what they're what this group was able to do is they were able to apply a fungus to the wood and it was able to kind of eat the wood in a specific way so they weren't maybe totally off the mark with the varnish because maybe in theory the varnish was eating the wood in a somewhat similar way creating a somewhat similar close approximation of the sound somewhat it was yeah it was how the chemicals affected the wood yeah 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 so this is another way that they're kind of affecting the wood. <laughs> they're able to kind of go through and apply this fungus and it's able to kind of degrade the cell walls, kind of thin them up. Wow. So able to change the quality of the wood itself. And they kind of pass it through this ethylene oxide gas. So it kind of kills all the fungus in it so they can apply it for so long, then kill it out. What they're able to do is... Um, there's been a, a new release of data about this. Uh, back in 2009, they had some original um, testing going on, and they were able to play a blind, behind-the-scenes curtain test, you know, with a genuine Stradivarius from 1711. So they had, you know, a jury of experts and an audience, and they played all these different violins, a Stradivari, a couple other violins, this, these, and... It wa- you know, they applied it for the fungus for nine months and they killed it off and it actually fooled them. Huh. They, they voted on which one was Stradivarius uh-huh. and the fungus applied one was the number one vote. The Stradivarius was the number two vote. Huh. So we're getting towards these ways that these high quality instruments, you know, there are only, uh, I think, a couple hundred left of this specific violin. They sell for goodness knows how much money huge amounts of money but these different types of ways that we're looking at now we're able to see you know varnishes or these you know fungal treatments that can increase the quality of an instrument you know to this high you know to the high quality that you know yeah. only the high experts get to deal with and maybe we can bring that price you know the qual that quality down. I mean, of course, the Stradivari are very, you know, rare, and they will always have a high price tag. But can we bring down a quality to the fact that a can normal we make a generic brand now? 
you know, yeah, a yeah. generic where a normal yeah. musician could actually get a chance a, to play yeah. something. Even if it was like a 95% close approximation. It's, yeah. I, I'd go for that. And I, the other thing I wonder, the first question that came to my mind is, could this be applied to other instruments? How many other instruments would sound differently if their wood structure was maybe porous isn't the right word, but you know, uh, uh, if you're able to thin the cell cellular walls, yeah, of of, of some other instrument that could be interesting. Any wood walled instrument, I would imagine, cello or you know any of those where the sound is you know partly reverberated throughout the wood yeah. and that's you know changing the tone of the of the sound i imagine that it could be applied to anything like that that's what i'm wondering and that could be really so, neat. so at this point they're kind of going all right how much fungal treatment is needed you know how much do you put on there how long do you leave it on there you know all these processes of kind of getting it down to eight science to be able to increase the tonal quality so you know what this really does reveal though what science it- makes music well, I mean, yes. I mean, music is science and, and vice versa. But uh, I, I think what it really tells us is that the original wood violins from way back when mm-hmm. were, were probably just, I mean, they probably were very prestigious, but they probably just had some fungus on them. <laughs> you know, and all these years, all these years later, all these, it's just yeah, a little fungus. Well, I mean, there were, there were other violin makers at the time who were just as skilled. It was just the, the specific wood that he used, it was... Had a fungus. Well... It was a fungus. It had floated down. You know, it was a specific type of growth wood. You know, it floated down the the river and hung out there for a little while. Then it got brought in, and it had specific um, varnish and chemical treatments applied to it. So all these things came together. Well, I mean, you can you know. zoom out from there. Think about think about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's just crazy, right? That's yeah. He had a very fortunate circumstance, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So you know, and that brought it forward to to today, where. You know, there, he made, you know, so many and then only a couple hundred survived to this day. But it was because of those, you know, conglomeration of events that just happened to happen for him. Yeah. And now we're able to sort of go go back and kind of recreate in different ways, get to that same quality through different means. That's neat. It's and it's like funny, that. they, you know, in order to analyze the the chemical, you know, chemicals in the varnish... They had to beg, like really beg some, you know, someone who went through and reconstructed and, you know, took care of them. They like beg for like a little shaving left. Oh, I bet. Like that little bit right there. Can we just, can we just chip that piece off right there? We just, just like, you know, something that came off from when they were, you know. Oh my gosh. Did they pay them for that? Do you think? I don't know. I don't think they said, but you know. If if you get a chance, you get a chance. You're like, please, sir, please, when yeah. we have a little sweeping. Do it for science. Science. <laughs> wow. I hadn't even thought about how they got, yeah. I bet that was intense. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting, Heather. Well, any other thoughts on that one? No, it's just, you know, finding new ways to, uh, to kind of recreate what has happened in the past. Yeah, and perhaps now you everyone can uh, can hope and plan for a generic knockoff coming to a Walmart near them, right? <laughs> so, and it'll say right on there, it'll have stamped right on there, uh, made from uh, authentic uh, fungus. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Our, our local high school marching band can now play with the best of them. All right, Heather, with that said, I think it's time for the two-bite news. 
Always official. The two bike news. Bike news is in twos. And this two bike news holds night. All right. That was good. I felt good. So what is our first story in the two bike news? All right. NASA and the Planetary Society are giving students worldwide the opportunity to name an asteroid that an upcoming NASA mission will return samples from. Oh my gosh, lucky kids. They're doing an asteroid sample return. And this happens a lot of times. They're like, all right, kids worldwide, you have a chance to name this. What a fun way to get kids excited about science. Well, I mean, it was the same thing for the Curiosity rover. You know, it was named by... You know, I think she was a fifth grader Can they, when they were starting to do it. Hmm. And, you know, right before they launched, they, like, invited her in, and she actually got to sign her name on it. And, you I know, know. So she, I got an idea. How about, they, how about they open this up to the taxpayer? Because I tell you what, as a taxpayer, I'd sure love to get a chance <laughs> to take a crack at this stuff. You know, those kids got to put those uh, those two pairs of, uh, of uh, Polaroid cameras over the moon taking pictures of stuff. I didn't get anything. And I probably yeah. financed some of that. Well, tell you what, adult has to be the one to submit. So, sit down yeah. with your little guy. Be Jeez. like, all right. I forgot I could leverage the fact that I have children. Yes. Brilliant. Now, y- you might, I don't know how many words Abby has in her repertoire. Ah. So. Oh my gosh, I have two kids. I have two kids I could leverage. Good point. Yeah. Well, the deadline is December 2nd. Okay. So you have to realize their vocabulary between now and then. So if we have uh, kids or parents of kids listening, where would they go to uh, have, uh, have a shot at this? There is a link in the show notes about it. You can go to the Planetary Society contest page, uh, planetary.org slash get involved slash contest. Anyway, the whole link is in the link is in the show notes. Link is in the show notes. So what you're able to do is anyone under the age of 18, anywhere in the world, you submit one name up to 16 characters long, and you have a short explanation and rationale for your names, like awesomeness, because it's awesome. Something probably more in-depth than that might win. This is so, actually really easy to do. They even have, you can just do it all right here. On, they have a submission form right here I'm looking at. Yep, and... So all you have then a panel will review all the names. First prize will be awarded, and you know it'll be approved by the International Astronomical Union Committee, and they'll actually be you know an approved name for an asteroid. Cool. And you know they're planning on doing the sample return mission, launching it in 2016. Now they say they even planned a crewed mission, like people astronauts in 2025, but what? Hand wave, question mark, shrug shoulders. Yeah, shrug shoulders for sure. Hmm. Many emoticons over <laughs> the vocal waves. Now, I do believe that a sample return mission will probably maybe happen. Maybe not in 2016. Okay. Eh, it depends on yeah, budget, okay, but okay. there is this plan. Okay. And either way, a uh, students will have a chance to uh, name an asteroid, and that in itself is pretty amazing so if you have mm-hmm. kids if you uh have uh you know nieces nephews anyone that you know in the school system yeah point them in this, this would be a fun thing for teachers to get their class to do yeah point them in this direction and uh hopefully uh maybe somebody win if you win oh my or gosh. you know somebody who wins oh my gosh in this uh, 
yeah, you definitely mm-hmm. will probably get like an interview. You can call in. I'll be like, you're awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk, fi- you, we'll we'll talk to you about out. your space rock. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. All right, Heather, should we talk about tough hydrogel? Yes. Is this, like this, is this like something for my hair? No, not quite. Are you sure? Y- yeah. Okay. Now, right. maybe some uh, hydrogel might be something you deal with occasionally. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, hydrogel is a network of polymers that soak up lots of water. They end up like a jelly-like material. Mm. And, um, y- you know, like in diapers. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. But that, that stuff there that sucks up liquids. So, okay. I don't like so, that stuff very much. I mean, well, it is good yeah. in the sense that it performs a pretty important function. Yes, it performs its job very well. <laughs> now, researchers have already tried to make autonomous self-healing ones. So, you know, you have a sheet, you know, poke a hole in it and sort of oh, yeah. self-heals itself, you know, to repair. So, um, you know, on a spacecraft or something or anything on Earth where it'll hit and it needs to kind of repair itself. Now, they don't, but the problem is under strain, they don't really work that well. They can, they might break mm. or the toughness of them has always been an issue. Like the toughest hydrogel so far are used to make soft contact lenses. So if you've ever dealt with soft contact lenses, oh, you sure, have okay. you know, that they, they still can, you know, tear. Mm-hmm. And fall apart. Mm-hmm. Now, this particular hydrogel is coming out of uh, Harvard, an engineering team who created it from two different polymers. So the bonds from one are able to kind of break and come together again under pressure. Mm. So it spreads the energy out over a wide area. And the other mo- uh, molecules are kind of sticking everything together. So you have one holding everything together and one being able to kind of stretch and kind of spread out the the energy and the pressure. Okay. What this does, it's able to you know, hold the gel together and actually stretch to 20 times its normal length or thickness. Ooh. There's, there's a video in the show notes and it's, you can see it's a really thin gel. Yeah. And, and translucent you know, and. You know, translucent, thin, and a ball falls and it just stretches. And then, you know, it reverberates back and forth, but it's not harmed. It doesn't go back to its original shape, though. Well, it, it looks it's, like it stays stretched, but, well, it, it, but it stays intact. Well, this is really slow motion. Think of if you drop a rock in uh, water. You know, you have the ripples yeah, yeah. going for a little while, and then it'll kind of flatten out. So I imagine that this is just the same thing. It's just hmm. slowed down, so it's just looking at you know the time frame that it's rippling. It's not to complete you know steady state, calm down again. Um, the other thing. Obviously, just dropped once. It doesn't bounce back up and down. Mm-hmm. Just showing it can how well it can stretch and it can not be torn. So this opens the possibility of you have these that are self healing, but the whole idea that maybe you don't need something quote unquote self healing. If this can stretch, then you have this coated on something, and you know, if something hits it and it can, you know, stretch, it can bounce back and it's not going to be harmed. It's not going to be broken. Think about, I wonder if it was strong enough. Car barriers even could be, this could be an interesting application if it could yeah. catch it in a way. We have these uh, freeways, uh, on our freeway, we have these, uh, we have these uh, um, express lanes that uh, change direction during the day. And they put down these massive barrier sets of nets 
and uh, in case somebody accidentally gets on the on ramp when it's when it's the opposite direction. And uh, it would be interesting if you could use something like a series of these instead. <laughs> huh. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking purely space and stuff like that. But yeah, on a larger scale, what if you could have something that could stretch and hold its strength? Yeah. Ooh, space applications would be great too. I mean, I'm uh, sure. That's, that's the first thing I think of about. Of course, that. of course. <laughs> what, what but, would you use it for? Well, uh, coatings on... If you have long-term space travel, like say you have a manned mission to Mars or something. Yes. There are micrometeorites flying about the uh, solar, you know, solar yeah, system. Yeah. There is a lot of things just in Earth's atmosphere. There are paint chips from space shuttles from you know, 10 years ago. There are all these different things. And they track, they track everything you know, bigger than a certain size. I forget how big. And anything for that's large or might be in danger of the space station, then you know, you'll hear occasionally, oh, they had to move the space station a little to so that the chances of it getting hit are small. Hmm. So, you know, anything large you still don't want to hit your spacecraft, but it would help for the smaller items. You know, you want to coat the outside of your spacecraft with something that's going to sort of when a micrometeorite hits or, you know, paint chip flies, it's going to create a micro hole, possibly. You want something to seal that. So you have something that self-repairs or possibly you have this where it, you know, it kind of bounces in and back. The whole idea is you're maintaining a, a sphere of atmosphere, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So you're not going to lose anything through a hole. You know, you're not losing atmosphere through that or anything else. So these kind of things are very useful for, you know, space travel. Or possibly anything I think I've seen, um, you know, what about for, for screens or for, you know, some sort of solar panel or anything that's... Or what if, like, you stretched it on purpose? So if you, you be, because it's, it's small and tight... You could mm-hmm. transport something smaller, and then when you get somewhere, you put these pins in it, and you stretch it out, and now you have a cover of some kind or something like that. Yeah. Very so interesting. Something that you can hold something down or protect something, and it's all about, you know, the stretch, that it's so thin and it can stretch that much. Yeah. Well, guess what? I have good news. You do? Yes. The podcast has uh, just unlocked another podcast badge here, Heather, because uh, when a podcast, unlike traditional media, so one of the things we're great about is we go back and we follow up on stories. You know, you hear about somebody in the news and then you never hear about it again, especially when it comes to science stories. And you always wonder, well, whatever happened to these crazy robots that are eventually going to kill us all? And uh, Heather, I believe you do have an update. I do. Occasionally, we have talked about Boston Dynamics. They have the Alpha Dog. You know, it's the dog. The robot you may have seen where it looks like a horse or a dog and it's walking ro- walking along a parking lot yeah. and they, it slipped on ice and it was able to maintain it straight. They went up and they kicked it and it was able to maintain straight and it didn't go after them because they kicked it. It just kept walking. But now <laughs> they they have continued to like evolve and deg- you know new stuff going on. So they have their alpha dog, kind of the descendant of that one that we were just talking about, big dog. It now has the ability to follow a soldier without assistance, with, with no assistance. Oh, really? Like, follow, and it trab- tromps after you. Oh, sorry, I had the audio on this one. That's what it sounds like, huh? Yeah, it's actually... At least it's not going to sneak up on me. 
No, but it is actually much quieter than the previous version. It now, it, it looks like it has eyes. It looks well, like it has it, eyes. It's really. It, it has to be able to track a soldier. It's just like watching you, and then it'll like follow where you're going. Oh my gosh! It is bulkier and heavier than a horse. It can carry four hundred pounds Ooh. a year. Walk for twenty miles without needing a recharge. Okay, you got my attention here. This is great. So here in the video version, we're showing the follow the leader mode, and Heather has a uh, has embedded this video in the show notes and linked it as well. And uh, it it has uh, nobody controlling it, no cables connected to it. It's completely autonomous. Yep, no remote control or anything. It's just thinking for itself, following following the person that it was told to follow. It, it actually now, looks a lot like a horse in some respects. Yes, it kind of you know trots. Now it's only able to go a certain. This one's able to go a certain speed. It can only walk at about a few miles an hour. Trot up to about five miles an hour. Kinda now has, it kind of has hoofs too. Yeah. Now. You know, in the case of military use, a soldier will move about like seven, ten miles an hour. So it's not quite up to yeah. the speed that they want. So now they're working on being able to increase its speed without sacrificing the distance between recharges. But this is amazing. Yeah. And they're also working on other robots. I saw one on their website that it was about very humanoid and being able to walk, you know, like. No. Humanoid like walk. No. Yeah, look at that. It was kind of creepy. No, we've, <laughs> we've talked about the robots before where, you know, it looks like a little, you know, remote control car almost and it can jump 30 feet. They have one oh. that can kind of climb up a wall. Now, the one that caught my interest immediately for in this case was the cheetah, I believe you were showing it a minute ago. Where yeah, yeah. This thing runs. This king can run 18 miles an hour. Well, the last record for a robot is 18 miles an hour. This one can run up a little over 28 miles an hour. Now, just so you know, the fastest sprinter in the world, Usain Bolt, 27.8 miles an hour. It runs fast. The robots have us beat. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the rest of us don't quite run that fast. Now, right now, it's still tethered to an external power source. Oh, that makes a big difference. Running on an indoor indoor treadmill but next year they plan to finish a untethered one now most cases i'd be like eh, i don't know next year these guys they're like booking it in yeah they obviously know what they're doing oh incredibly so so i believe that that will be fairly soon so it just seems got- like when they put an independent power source on it that's going to add a lot of weight you figure that's got to drop the speed down from 28 miles per hour Possibly. It seems like they're working on this sort of balance. I mean, they have the one uh, that, you know, yeah, walks this, for... This one would probably be the short... This would probably have a short range, wouldn't it? Yeah, this is a, this is a sprinter. You've got the runner that goes for 20 miles without a recharge. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So maybe you'll have the, you know, the sprinter version that either doesn't go as far, but... Now what they ought to do is load a Windows XP on it and connect it to the internet, and then everything should be fine. <laughs> and don't put a firewall on it. Yeah, that it'll fall down. And, and then it'll stand up and, you know. Chase everybody. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, now, uh, in, other, in other good news. <laughs> Besides robots that can outrun us and can carry, like, multiple people at once. Yeah. And, you, you know, we've talked, you know, Curiosity had the jetpack and the, and the laser. All these robotic features are just 
scaring people but that's okay it's still really cool yes i do agree with you there and it's it's well that's how all new technology is right well yeah it looks really cool and then you're like creepy cool yeah yeah yeah, yeah. can't quite decide where i am right right exactly yep. but um, we have less creepy updates some more okay i'm pretty sure i mentioned it back in may where we had a disintegrating planet you know yeah. kepler yeah. is looking at the you know the blinking you know to watch for you know you this know, is what something somebody should worry about don't worry about the robots worry about your planet disintegrating <laughs> you know <laughs> so they're able to spot planets through the dimming and there was one that they were able to kind of see a dim and then like a whole bunch of little mini dims yeah and they're like all right what's going on so they they thought well it must be dust like you know a dust cloud well what if it's you know a, a planet disintegrated there's been another team that was able actually to detect it so there have been uh, you know, backup to kind of nut some more evidence that say there is a Mercury-sized world being boiled away from the heat of its parent star. Wow! So they're seeing it, you know, fall away. It's they suggest there's kind of a tiny scorched world that is actually falling apart. They both sets of observations were with the Kepler. The temperatures that they're kind of estimating were about three thousand degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, it's whipping around that star about every 15 hours or so. It must be traveling through time like a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long since I've made it. It's been so long. I had to, I had to get oh, in there. Oh, yeah. See, it, it took me a minute for, for time to catch up with me. Yeah, uh, yeah. I realize where you were going with that. But yeah. yes, this is really traveling through time. Yeah. Except the part doing so. Right. So Kepler can't look at the colors. Of the dust, but once they're able to get observations of the dust cloud itself, they're able to they'll be able to determine how much of it there is, the composition of what's there, and then from that they'll be able to, say, be able to estimate how long it will last, how long the little planet will last until it's completely fizzled away. What an interesting thing for them to be able to watch. Very cool. And uh, I agree with a uh, Aviator Continuum in the chat room. He says, "I hereby name it Planet Lobster." So I think that's I think that's good. I, I I like that. All right, Heather. Well, guess what? I've got this button flashing right here on my screen, and it's got these spaceships flying around on it. Yes, it does. Oh, that must mean it's time for a spacecraft update. Yes, this is a bittersweet one. Okay. The in Shuttle Endeavor is the last shuttle that was ever constructed. Mm -hmm. It had twenty five missions, and now today. Literally today, uh, September 11th and into the 12th, is being mounted on top of a 747 shuttle carrier aircraft and will be the last space shuttle orbiter to fly when it departs mm. on Monday the 17th. Wow. It'll take a three-day trip to LA, International Airport. So we've talked about you know all the different shuttles you know, traipsing about the country, and this is the last one. It's going to... You know, across the country, and it'll make a quite a few, uh, uh, at least one lay layover, a couple of flyovers, different parts of the country, uh, Cape Canaveral, in Mississippi, in New Orleans, in New Mexico, in uh, Edwards Air Force Base, in Sacramento, in San Francisco, in Houston, in Clear Lake, in Galveston, and all sorts of different places. And it'll actually land in LAX on the twentieth. Now, all this is kind of weather, weather permitting. You know, big question mark. Towards the sky, everything might change at the drop of a hat or the drop of a raindrop. 
So it'll actually, you know, start on, you know, it'll be lifted off the crane and then they will, you know, it'll probably land. Um, you know, they're expecting that it will hoist off the ground, be lowered onto the back and then remain there in Ellington for on the 18th. And it'll, you know, it'll land there for a layover and allow, that'll allow the Johnson Space Center employees and the Houston public, you know, a chance to kind of go and gawk. <laughs> and it, well, they didn't get, you know, they didn't get one. I would so gawk, they, yeah, if it was in Seattle, I'd gawk. Are you kidding? Well, yeah. And so then they will, you know, kind of take to the air as the sun rises and stop over at uh, Biggs Air Force Base in El Paso very briefly for a refueling and then it will head off for the last time departing from Dryden fly over Northern California pass by the uh, NASA center there hmm. and you know fly over a couple of different cities San Francisco Sacramento and the state's capital and head towards LA and it will land and it will kind of stay in LA for a little while I mean at the airport for a short time and then it will actually take the 12 mile journey from the airport to the space center and it'll get there on the 13th. Now this is one that is, you know, been kind of big news because it's kind of everywhere else is kind of, you know, the port, you set it down, you know, on the, the ship, you know, at, in New York, or it goes into the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. This one is actually landing and then has to drive down the road. You know, like, and I saw, I almost clipped it just for the show to just kind of show sometimes how the news covers this stuff. The NBC National News ran a story. Uh, did you know they're cutting down trees in LA to make room for the space shuttle? Yes, it's actually been kind of a big deal at the last minute. I mean, it's been known for a while. Yeah. I we're looking at it and, you know, reading about it months ago about how they were going to have to replant some trees, cut down some trees because it was literally going to be like, Within a foot, you know, on either side, you know, inches gap for space. But so they are going to have, they have so many trees that, like you said, they are going to cut down. They're going to yeah. replant some trees, but it's, they're kind of going, okay, there is like one path. You know, they have to find the roads that are built to. It's not like they do this all the time. They're replanting and also, uh, you know. <clears throat> getting a shuttle. This is, this is, this, this has happened before. Yeah. I mean, it's not the first time that you, know, you might have to cut down a tree. And they're getting the space shuttle. Yeah. They're getting a space shuttle. And they're replanting? And, yeah, they're going to replant quite a few of them. Quite a few, most. Yeah, most. About one yeah. out of five. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't recall the, the exact details about how many are being cut down and how many were planted. But it will open up on October the 30th. Now, if you happen to be in any of those vague areas, I have got... You know, the, the details about which cities are all the dates and cities there in the show notes. And if you are happen to be in L.A., they've even got a Google map showing you the path that it's going to take. So Very hop cool. Over, so hop over there. There's a couple of Twitter notes. And if you happen to be able to see it, it's going to be flying pretty low over some of these areas. Uh, snap a pic. Put it up on uh, Twitter. You know, tag one of us. Yeah. Tag uh, JB underscore Mars underscore base. And I will definitely uh, talk about it in the show. Awesome, Heather. Well, great. 
And I, I really look forward to hearing somebody. I would love to have somebody report to on the scene. Our on the scene reporter will call him for that episode. Sound good? Okay. Let's turn over to the Curiosity Update. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. Oh, yeah. We're there. What's going on on the uh, old Mars planet now? Alrighty, it's been starting to test out some of it, more of its arm capabilities. Okay. Some instruments, including the vibration testing, the Alpha Particle X-ray Spectrometer, did some uh, preliminary calibration readings. Some atmosphere- Oops, sorry, I didn't make her mean to talk over here. Go ahead. That's okay. She knows what she's talking about too. <laughs> and, uh, so this is going to be able to kind of send X-rays down at it and take spectrographic readings of materials. So they've got, um, you know, a calibration grid. You know, of known materials that they can kind of reach over, test it, and be like, all right, we know what this is. Now let's go over here, you know, take a reading. So they can kind of go back and recalibrate their, um, you know, their reader. And they also have the dynamic albedo, albedo of neutron instrument, which is uh, Dan, which is able to check uh, the ground to be able to. Uh, under the rover to be able to see whether it's holds hydrated minerals. So if there's water somewhere in those, so they, it was sent to command to take uh, readings for six hours. Hmm. So they have a long-term test of that. They also use the Mars Hand Lens Imager, Molly, to take images of the wheels and the undercarriage of the rover, sort of being sort of a test to see how they could maneuver the arm in exact specific ways. Um, this is one that is for very close-up imaging. It's like a microscope for the imager, for, for you know, for the rover. Has a dust cover. Um, earlier in the week, I, able, I uh, tweeted, you know, sort of reached up and it took a picture of the main mast cam. How cool is that? It's like taking a picture of itself. It's adorable. I was like, you know those people that like in every roll of film, and I almost said roll of film, and that kind of dates me, mm. like had to take a picture of themselves. It's like I had an uncle. Every time you like go through a batch of photos, oh, oh there he took a picture of himself. <laughs> now it's red, not because of dust, but because it has the dust cover on it. They were they were taking some pictures with the dust cover oh, on, okay. and then they took it off and took some pictures with it, you know, with it exposed to be able to tell how detailed um, they could actually see. Hmm. But I saw the self portrait, and I was like, that is hilarious. Yeah. It, it is awesome. So they were able to sit there and move around, check to see if they could take a precise picture of itself, take, you know, if it could maneuver under their rover and be able to take those pictures. And so it's testing all the capabilities of the arm more and more of them. There are quite a few instruments on there. Another note that I saw is that, you know, we've talked about how the various, um, you know, instruments on Mars or orbiting Mars are able to kind of work in tandem to see where everything is going. You know, they're able to, you know, able to take pictures of them as they fall and as they land. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, follow the tracks and be able to say, okay, here it is. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is actually able to see Curiosity's tracks so far. And what's interesting is that the Reconnaissance Orbiter is so precise and the Curiosity is so big that you can actually see the separate wheel tracks. Like you see parallel tracks. No. Yeah. So, and you can, and so there is the rover and you can almost see like a little bit of a shadow. That's awesome. From, so he's like, you see these, you know, dual wheels, you know, tracks 
and then almost kind of a shadow to this uh you know to the right of a little of a little bit for the mass cam so they're able to really track where this thing's going and kind of getting a good idea of you know where it's been where it's going they know where it's planning to go the glenald i believe it's called something along those lines so they've got a formation there and it's just that they can bring all of this together it's it's just really cool and in a totally unbiased um you know mars centric way right you know because you know name like mars base i'm gonna be very <laughs> very uh you know even yeah, you know you're, you, uh, well, i believe it's called fair and balanced i believe is the term you're looking for so if everything applied to mars so <laughs> uh are you gonna mention this cool belly shot that it got of itself too Yes, I was talking a minute ago how it was able to take a picture of its wheels and belly, and it was actually in pretty high def. So in the the background, you can kind of see some of the the hills and the mountains there. It's you know, just a gr- great shot, you guys. If you if you're listening to the audio version, go check out the show notes. It's so cool. You see all the wheels. You oh. can the you know the Morse code dash holes in the wheels. Kind of see how much dust is kind of stuck up on them. Not much. <laughs> Not really dusty in this area, but be able to just see all of that. Yeah. So it took a picture of its feet. It took a picture of its head. It's doing all sorts of self-portraits today. This so far, though, right, has all been pretty much best case scenario. Oh, incredibly so. Everything had all, I mean, some of the instruments, um, the laser, you know, was talked about it uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. How they're able to, you know, take the spectrographic analysis from that. They actually got better... They actually got less noise on Mars than they did on Earth testing. Really? Yeah, so it you know, the landing was was perfect. Everything has been going so well. Where is some Martian wood to knock on? Cause we need to find some right now. Yeah. But been going really well. Good. Good. Well, and we we've been getting some good updates too. So And we will continue to do so because <clears throat> everything is gonna be for a while very exciting. There's going to be kind of some lulls as it travels between places, but we're going to have, you know, shows like this where a whole bunch happens. And it's probably going to be doing stuff as it goes, right? I mean, come on. Well, yeah, you're going to be doing testing as it goes. There's, you know, they've got a goal. So their whole idea is to kind of travel to that area without too much ADD in the middle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but they're not going to totally do nothing between here and there. You know, essentially, with any of these rovers, you have to take it day by day. You know, plan for as far ahead as you can and, you know, run under the bias that who knows when it might stop. Even this early in the mission. You know, it's totally worst, worst case scenario is what you always have to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah. So, uh, some in the uh, chat room asked, if they are continuing to do daily or weekly, you know, uh, conferences, they are doing a weekly Curiosity Rover report, as they put it, every Friday. I've got links in the show notes to where those are. Now, Curiosity, as the Martian rover, is going to be, you know, a chunk image friendly. Those are going to be a whole bunch of beautiful images to check out. So it's a really good excuse to head over, click them up, you know, yeah. check everything out. And they've got uh, in this update they've got uh, they've got some they've got some cool uh, some of the cool images that Heather's covered here and some other ones too. Uh, now it wasn't done with Mohawk guy this week though, so I don't know might not be of an interest to people. Well, there's going to be a different person every week. Yeah, I want Mohawk guy. Oh, poor. But 
the guy has a name too. Uh, or, yeah, it's Mohawk guy. Name now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I would own that if I was him. I would have drunk. <laughs> two mascots: Curiosity Rover and Mohawk and guy. A- <laughs> <laughs> So you know. <laughs> All right, Heather. Should we uh, should we jump in the time machine? Let's go for All it. All right, let's do it. Close the door. Oh, oh, oh. oh we're going. We're going far this time, folks. I can feel it. I can feel it in the vibrations of the time machine. Goodness gracious, it takes us to 190 years ago, September 17th, 1822. What happened this week in science, Heather? The Rosetta Stone was deciphered. No, this is not the expensive, cool language software that you can buy off Amazon. Mm. This was the the original. It is a ancient Egyptian uh, granitoid steel, whatever it is, a big rock. And on it had you know some decree issued in 196 BC. And there were three scripts. It had ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, a demotic script, which was sort of a Egyptian cursive, sort of uh, the way that they did, you know, more business class stuff. And then ancient Greek. So it was, I think they called it like language of the gods, language of the people, language of the, you know, Greeks. Mm, okay. And so they had all of these up and down. They discovered it back in 1799. Now at that time, could not translate hieroglyphs. Mm. So what they're able to do is they're able to say, okay, this is the same text for all three cases. Now assume that it's saying the same paragraph. Now go through and be able to try to figure out what the different hieroglyphs mean. Sort of back calculate, reverse engineer the language. Now it took like 20 years to just be able to translate the hieroglyphs on that stone Mm. specifically now it wasn't like another 20 years until they could sort of translate regular egyptian hieroglyphs elsewhere so there now in the end they found a couple other pieces similar to this where there's you know three languages but this was the first instance where there were three different languages all together so now, you know, now it means you know, this, the Rosetta Stone, it's like the key piece of information that kind of unlocks everything. Hmm. And it really was. It was this one bit, you know, of carved rock that was able to allow us to translate ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. You know, you look through and you can see, you know, watch a program about ancient Egypt and they're like, oh, yes, this is the, the you know, they post the hieroglyphs up on the screen and they do the little translation and, you know, pop out the hieroglyph, what it looks like. And it's all because this specific text was there that they're able to kind of cross over and be able to get all that information from this. It was finally deciphered 190 years ago this week. Wow. And you remember we talked about the book at the top of the show? Mm -hmm. Information there if you're interested in this very, 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 very germane to that topic. So check it out, and it's a great way to support the show. Now we do have. Uh, should we? Is this uh, is this next part part of the looking up segment? Yes, it is. We have a very special looking up into the sky this week, don't we? That is right. First, we had somebody uh, send in to make sure we saw that Jupiter has had an impact. Yeah. Something impacted. Now there was an amateur astronomer who observed the flash from uh, Oregon in the United States, sort of 
made an observation, sent it through the appropriate channel, said, hey, I think I saw something here. So they kind of held off and they're like, okay, lots of people are watching Jupiter all the time. Let's wait and see. And sure enough, somebody from Dallas, Texas came back and said, I actually have the impact flash on my web pa- webcam. On his webcam. Yep. So he had it you know, hooked up to his telescope and it was going along. They saw the flash. So now the whole idea is to kind of, it was on you know, the rotating back um, behind Jupiter. So now they have to wait for it to come back around to the front to see if maybe it sort of, you know, as they call it, bruise it bruised. Left a mark. Yeah, yeah, whether it left a mark. If you remember back, uh, you may not remember, but back when uh, Shoemaker Levy 9, the comet hit, you know, there were a whole bunch of different marks left. Almost looked like bruises, largest one like a black eye almost. Mm, I do remember that. So, you know, it depends on how large it was, but it may leave a bit of a mark. And that's sort of the after effect of it as it punches kind of a hole through the upper clouds and it lets the lower atmosphere clouds kind of come up. And they're much darker. I uh, I heard somebody call uh, Jupiter the vacuum cleaner of our solar system. It is. It kind of is. It it really does collect a lot of that outer stuff that could have the uh, you know ability to come in to the inner solar system, mm-hmm. possibly cause us problems. And it really helps it, us with that. <laughs> does help us with that. It's mm-hmm. actually kind of around like that in astronomy. Astronomy circles as well. Now, have you seen the video of the impact that's on Flickr? Uh, I saw a picture of it. Oh, oh okay. Well, if uh, you have the stream up, I have the video version of it too. You can actually watch the impact happen, and uh, it's, the uh, it's I don't know, it's pretty it's pretty basic, but uh, it's exciting because the guy has had it on his webcam, and uh, uh, it makes you wonder if we'll see a mark, doesn't it? Yeah, I think we will. Hmm. Kind of. Talking about Jupiter. Well, it is an awesome planet. But we actually had somebody send in. He took a uh, a picture through his telescope. It was a Celestron C8 telescope, and took a picture with his Samsung Galaxy camera. That's that's so he, he took like, a picture of it with his phone. That's so funny. Through so you know it was through the telescope. It was like the fact that he was able to hold it still so well. I was really impressed by that. Now, I assumed when he showed these to me, and I might have gotten this wrong, Heather, but are, are these the moons of Jupiter that I'm seeing too? Yes, that is correct. That is three of the four moons. I actually popped it up on my uh, Twitter, sort of took his image and went through and I had uh, through Sky and Telescope's webpage, I was able to clock in the time and the date that he... That's awesome. And he was able to show me where the moons were. And he got three of the moons. Um uh, Io, Ganymede, and uh, Europa, I believe. Callisto was far on the other side of Jupiter, so it may or may not have been able to be seen. And anyway, the focus of the of it was here. Now, on one of the images, I reversed it. You know, I took the negative of it. Yeah. Because it's often very much easier to see the black on the white. So you can kind of see the dots a lot oh, easier. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Especially E. You can definitely see E a lot better. Yeah, and the you know certain star books will actually be that way, where it'll be black on white. You know, you have a choice of white on black, you know, white stars in a black background, or white uh, black stars on a white background. It really lets you see some of the um, fuzzier or smaller stars a lot easier, just because how our eyes work. Hmm. But you know, if anybody else you know spies anything, yeah, send it in. 
go ahead and send it on in. Uh, if you don't know what it is or if you need help identifying, I can definitely do that for you. And you'll, one way or the other, you'll at least get a, a mention and a pop-up in the show. Boy, talk about 2012 when people are taking uh, videos of impacts on, on Jupiter with their webcams and pictures of Jupiter with their cell phone and then sending it into a podcast. This is incredible. <laughs> Our sent that in was uh, Wesley Mag- Magyar, and yeah. I'm sorry, I butchered your name. Yeah, he, you know, I, he, uh, he shared that album with me on Google+, and that was really a treat. So thank you to him yeah. for sending that in. I'm glad he pinged you, too, because uh, I, I wanted to make sure you saw that. But you did. So now uh, we have a traditional looking up, too, don't we? We do. All right. Uh, do you want me to hit it again? I can hit it again. I can. I can. Well, I mean, I already played it once, Heather, but I'll play it for you twice. Okay. So this week up in the sky, it's kind of a, a slow week in general, but we've got a couple planets up there. Uh, Venus, if you look up uh, just a couple hours before sunrise, it's going to rise in the east to northeast. By dawn, it'll be high in the eastern sky. Uh, Mars and Saturn, uh, you can view right after uh, twilight. It'll be low in the west and the southwest. They'll kind of be, they're widening apart. They're getting farther and farther apart. The they're going to be roughly the distance between your pointer and your pinky finger extended at arm's length. Okay. So you kind of spread those out like um, longhorns or something. Mm. They'll be about that far between each other. Now, Jupiter this week is going to be rising about midnight. It's going to be rising in the east to northeast. It'll be above the horizon. Um, when it's just above the horizon, shall I say, it'll be, uh, there'll be a faint star, Aldebaran, about four fingers width to its right. Now, it is uh, an orange star, which is why I bring up, uh, bring up that star, generally, because it's, it, it's possible to mistake that from Mars. But over there by Jupiter, mm, it is actually okay. uh, the orange uh, red giant. So, got a couple planets up in the sky uh, this week, so hopefully you might be able to see them. Yeah, and if you do, maybe get a picture of them. Yes, send it in. Yep, and uh, don't forget to follow uh, Heather on Twitter. She is JB underscore Mars underscore base. You can follow me on Twitter. I am twitter.com slash Chris L-A-S. Heather, I do believe that is the whole show, isn't it? That is a science. Wow, well, that was a fun show. Great show, Heather. Thank you very much. You. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you to the chat room, too, who's joined us uh, over here at jblive.tv at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. And, uh, you know what, you guys, I encourage you to do that because uh, we read your questions live in the show. And also, uh, your uh, your chat handles are in our videos, kind of like you're the star. And that's always yeah. a lot of fun. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning to this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>